Okay, welcome everyone to this evening's meeting of the Aristotelian Society. It's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker, Fabian Freyenhagen. Fabian's um, a reader in philosophy at the University of Essex, having previously taught at Sheffield and Cambridge. And apart from articles and a forthcoming book on Adorno's practical philosophy, he's also published on Kant and Hegel, as well as on contemporary political philosophy. He's co-edited two books um, with Gordon Finlayson, Disputing the Political, Habermas and Rawls, and with Tom Brooks, The Legacy of John Rawls. And Fabian's also co-investigator of the Essex Autonomy Project. And today, the um, title of Fabian's talk is Ethical Self-Critique. Thanks very much. Thank you. Let me begin by thanking the Executive Committee of the Aristotelian Society for inviting me to talk to its members today. It's a great honor to address this audience, and I'm grateful to be able to draw on the philosophical news assembled in this room and among the members at large. And we also thank those who commented on earlier versions of the draft. For some reason, um, the thanks got lost in the formatting process. I hope to remedy that in the final version. Finally, let me say that the problem I present in this paper will be considered by some of you to be misconceived, and by others as insufficiently addressed. But I think that it presents a genuine problem and I hope that we can think through it together. When looking back at the social context such as Nazi Germany in the 1930s and 40s, one feels both a clear sense of moral condemnation and a nagging question whether it's just the luck of a later birth that puts one in a position to condemn the outlook and actions of a regime supporter rather than to endorse them. Perhaps if one had been growing up within the authoritarian social structures of the German Empire, had experienced a world war and the turmoil that followed it, had been affected by the economic and political crises of the Weimar Republic, and had finally been subjected to a propaganda machine and the elimination of any opposition voices, then one would have succumbed to the racist, social Darwinist ideology and gladly signed up to the NSDAP, a lucrative role in the state apparatus, and perhaps even the war or the death camps. One might think, there's something mistaken in this speculation. Since arguably it would not have been we who could have been in this earlier historical context, given that who we are is inextricably tied with when we are born and the contemporary social world we inhabit, which in our case is formed at least in part by the historical experience of Nazism. But why then the nagging question? which, I take it, does not simply go away when one reminds oneself of these considerations. Thus, there still seems to be a reason to pause and reflect on what resources are at our disposal to engage critically with our ethical formation and outlook if these turned out to be morally corrupt as a whole. After all, there's no guarantee against the re-emergence of something like fascism, and furthermore, it is a distinct possibility that our formation and outlook are completely wrong too, albeit in a different way and to a different extent than that of a member of the NSDAP in the 1930s and 40s. Perhaps future generations will look at the, at the ways in which we destroy the natural environment and at the ways we leave many of us to die of poverty and easily preventable diseases as deeply wrong and as due to a wholly corrupt ethical formation and outlook. In response to such considerations, it might seem natural to think that what we would need and what ethical theory should supply is an external validation. An external validation, one that is independent of our own and any other ethical outlooks. 
However, for various reasons, uh, one might think that such a validation is not and perhaps could not be available. Or even if it were available, that such a validation could not actually make a difference, since it would be an abstract ord, which would lack motivational power and or be unsuitable as guidance for the inevitably concrete situations in which we act. In this paper, I do not dispute that an external validation of our ethical formation and outlook is unavailable or unsuitable. Instead, I want to ask what other resources we have to navigate the kinds of contexts with which I started. The purpose is twofold. On the one hand, my sense is that the search for external validation of ethics derives much of its motivation from the thought that without it, we would be entirely lost in the sorts of contexts I started with. Against this, I want to argue that we have more resources available than those hankering after external than those hankering after external validation realize. On the other hand, I want to agree with them. I want to agree that a certain form of internal validation of ethics is insufficient to gain critical purchase on one's ethical formation and outlook. The internal validation strategy I have in mind is piecemeal reflection, which is often illustrated by a particular interpretation of the metaphor of Neurath's boat. As, for example, McDowell writes, and I quote, and this is on your handout, there's an alternative to external validation, a conception of reflection for which the appropriate image, at least for us, is Neurath's, of the marina repairing the sh his ship while afloat. Neuratian reflection on an inherited scheme of values takes place at a standpoint within that scheme. The scheme can be altered piecemeal, but not suspended in its entirety with a view to rebuilding it from ground up." End of quote. Those who deny external validation and argue for piecemeal reflection envisage that such reflection can be radical. Indeed, according to Hursthaus, the Neuratian approach can handle the possibility, quote, that our acquired ethical outlook might be all wrong. All it, the Neuratian approach, denies is that we could either find this out or fix up a new correct one quickly. For in theory, Neurath's boat might, over many years, become like Theseus's ship, without a single plank of the original remaining. And then, in a manner of speaking, we, or our descendants, could look back at the ethical outlook within which we started and condemn it in retrospect as all wrong. End of quote. The worry I have about this proposal is that it does not seem to me to do justice to the depth of the problem. Specifically, piecemeal reflection ultimately comes down to whether or not our ethical outlook is internally coherent. And what is overlooked thereby is the possibility that it is so coherent and all wrong. If it were that, then the proposed method of ethical critique provides, at least speaking from within the outlook, no reason for changing it, whether slowly or quickly. Naturally, the ethical outlook might change anyway. Only philosophical hubris can make one think that ethical outlooks merely change because of incoherence. The point is that an internally coherent ethical outlook might still be something that is morally wrong in its entirety. Thus, as important as it is to scrutinize each element of our ethical outlook against the background of the other elements making up this outlook, this approach would be shipwrecked if we faced a consistent, coherent ethical outlook which was morally corrupt as a whole. Let me add three clarifications at this point. When I speak of an ethical outlook, I do not refer merely to a set of propositions. Rather, when I, what I have in mind is an ethical orientation as it is lived 
by a person, as contained in the person's actions and dispositions, and at least in part reflected in his or her self-understanding. Whether or not such a lived ethical orientation is fairly codifiable into a set of propositions is itself a matter of debate, and I do not need to take a stance on this here. The key point is that an ethical outlook can form a whole even if it's not codifiable. One way in which various elements in an ethical outlook can form a whole, rather than being a random and unconnected collection of elements, is if there's a unifying principle, say Kant's categorical imperative. However, this is not the only way in which the elements can be unified. It might be that the unity consists rather in how the various elements of an ethical outlook are combined by an exemplary agent, the virtuous agent, Jesus, the Buddha, whoever else the particular outlook takes as constitutive for itself and its unity. Indeed, McDowell, Eyal, and the others who hold these kind of views are committed to this sort of picture. For them, there's an ethical whole, not least because they hold the thesis of the unity of the virtues. This thesis means, among other things, that we cannot understand the virtues in isolation, but that each of them is formed in the light of others and understandable only as a unified package. I'm not saying that all ethical outlooks form a whole. Some outlooks might be too internally divided for that, or their elements might be too unconnected. Most ethical outlooks will, as a matter of fact, not live up to the unity to which they aspire. Even in respect to them, however, we can speak of a whole, such as in the context of their holders' attempts to realize this aspiration for greater unity. Now, you might be skeptical of ethical, that ethical outlooks can form a whole. But I think even if you're skeptical in this way, you would admit, I take it, that we interpret ethical outlooks with a view to their unity. We interpret them to, with a view to what makes them holes, and um, at least internally speaking, how the agent thinks of them in that way and aims practically to, aspire, to achieve that aspiration. I also think they are genuine phenomena of reflections, where agents can be best characterized as reflecting about the whole of their outlook not just about elements within it, asking themselves how they relate to the whole outlook, whether they are committed to it in its entirety or not, whether it's expressive of the kind of person they want to be or not. Natural language marks these kind of issues, phenomena, by expressions such as, it is nothing but a house of cards, or the whole thing is just a scam. That might be the kind of conclusion um, from reflecting on my outlook as a whole. It's nothing but a house of cards. Speaking by way of the Neuratian metaphor, these phenomena are about asking about the shape of a boat, not merely about how each plank fits into it. The key point is that whether or not our ethical outlooks actually do form holes, or could do so, is not decisive here. Even if, we, if the genuine phenomena I just pointed to are just matters of reflecting as if our ethical outlooks form holes, they cannot be captured by way of piecemeal reflection by thinking about just elements and how they fit into a whole. But I think thinking about our outlook as a whole is nonetheless crucial. Secondly, I would also like to note that in most cases, a person's lived ethical orientation will be connected to a wider social context within which he or she he lives and with which he shares his ethical outlook. Thus, we might also speak of an ethical outlook that is dominant in a society, as when we ask what ethos animates its practices and institutions or how the dominant outlook changed in Britain as a consequence of the reforms initiated by Thatcher. Or we might speak of an outlook as dominant among a particular subset of society, 
say, the outlook of the SS or the outlook of members of a party or religious organization. Now, there are various ways in which the outlook, as lived by one individual, and as it's contained in the social practices and institutions um, in which he or she partakes, how these two things can come apart. I don't want to deny that. But I think they can also closely align in particular cases. The outlook of individual might indeed exemplify particularly well the dominant social ethos. In this paper, I will be particularly interested in such cases, although much of what I say applies also to instances where the outlook in question is only held by an individual and deviates from the ethical outlook animating the social practices he or she partakes in or from the outlook dominant in society. Finally, let me comment on the idea of coherence. This notion is itself subject to intense philosophical debate, and I would like to remain as ecumenical as possible here. Understanding coherence to involve supporting relations and inferential connections among the elements and a sort of consistency among them. It is admittedly not straightforward to make sense of coherence of an ethical outlook, especially if this is understood in the wider sense that I've just mentioned. An ethical outlook is not just a matter of propositions, but also dispositions and actions as possibly non-codifiable and as animating social practices and institutions, not just the lives of isolated individuals. However, I do not think that the difficulties involved in this are insurmountable. For example, whether or not an ethical outlook is codifiable, conflict between dispositions will lead to dissonance, and we might then co understand coherence as the absence of such dissonance and the presence of mutually supporting dispositions and values. With these clarifications in place, let us return then to the very that there might be coherent but all wrong ethical outlooks. As uncomfortable as it might be, Nazism, both as the official doctrine and how at least some people took it up as orientation that governed their lives, might have presented such a coherent ethical outlook. Whatever was wrong with it was not its lack of coherence, understood to recall to include both consistency and a high degree of mutual supporting relations and inferential connections among the elements. Indeed, what was problematic about Nazism includes that it did not contain sufficient tensions to allow a challenge to rise within it. It was hermeneutically sealed off, at least in the way it operated in many people. In a certain sense, then, it might have been more coherent than our ordinary ethical outlooks are, which often include inconsistencies and less tight relations between all the elements. Moreover, even in the case of those adherents of Nazism whose outlooks still contain tensions, these tensions tended to be such that it could be accommodated without radical change. Thus, the main character of Jonathan Littell's The Kindly One, called Max Auer, might be, by way of peaceful reflection, come to the conclusion that the extreme Nazi outlook of the SS, to which he subscribes wholeheartedly, would hang together better if its prohibition on homosexuality would be dropped. But even after having come to that conclusion, it might well be the, that um, his outlook would then be coherent, or at least Max Auer would view it as such. Indeed, we can imagine that piecemeal reflection might make things worse, at least when judged from the outside. Perhaps an SS-man SS man charged with some extermination duties with which he wholeheartedly agrees encounters psychological or even physical difficulties when carrying out his duties, say because of a physical abhorrence of inflicting suffering on others. By way of piecemeal reflection on his ethical outlook, which to recall need not be thought of as merely propositional but involves also dispositions to act and the like, he, this SS-man, might decide and be correct in his assessment that we can achieve higher coherence if he overcame this physical abhorrence. 
and he might then, as a consequence, set out and possibly achieve to overcome it. Finally, if I'm mistaken about my historical claims about the internal coherence of Nazism, and I haven't given you any historical evidence that I'm right about it, if I'm mistaken about it, we can imagine that there might be ethical outlooks that are wholly wrong, but internally coherent, and what I just said about Nazism was true of these outlooks. This possibility alone suggests that peaceful reflection would leave us shipwrecked. Here one might reply that what I'm really saying is that from our different ethical outlook, the ethical outlook in question, say that of the Nazis propagated and put into praxis, is all wrong, that it's not so from within it. We are then faced with a pluralism of ethical outlooks, possibly even a pluralism of outlooks that are internally coherent but mutually incompatible. And this might lead to a search for external validation, especially if this pluralism is accompanied by real practical conflicts, as is likely. Moreover, if no such external validation is possible or suitable, then we have to adopt a number of other strategies to manage such pluralism and conflicts. Perhaps toleration, dialogue, compromise or consensus building measures, self-defense, war, re-education, incarceration, or whatever else might come to mind. These strategies would be political coping mechanisms, not ethical validation. It's perhaps surprising how little the problem of pluralism and conflicts features within the writing of Hearst, House, McDowell, and others who reject external validation, but this by itself does not show that the proposition they hold is mistaken. It might well be that Neuratian piecemeal reflection is all there is in terms of ethical validation of one's outlook, rather than in terms of political coping strategies for coexistence or survival. In what follows, I want to consider what other resources we can mobilize that are not external validations of the sort that Hearst, House, McDowell, and others reject, but nonetheless are not just political coping strategies. I suspect that McDowell and his followers do not cast a net wide enough, and that piecemeal reflection needs to be supplemented by these other critical resources. In particular, I want to investigate whether there are ways to take the whole of an ethical outlook as a whole into view, rather than only one of its elements at a time in relation to its other elements and to do so, to take the whole interview without recourse to external validation. This way, one would not miss what I worry piecemeal reflection does miss, the possibility that there's something problematic about the outlook as a whole, which due to its internal coherence, does not come into view when checking for how its elements fit together or fit into it. Now, before considering a number of ways in which the whole might be critically investigated, let me address one objection that might have been nagging you from the beginning. Can we even make sense of a view that is morally corrupt as a whole, rather than, say, only on the whole corrupt? McDowell et al. do not seem to exclude this possibility as such. Remember the Hearsthaus quote that it might be that it's all wrong. So they don't seem to exclude this possibility as such. Although they want to suggest that we, given that no external validation is and can be available or suitable, could never get our outlook as a whole into view at once, but could find out about its whole, holy wrongness only one piece at a time. Yet one might think that the very idea that an ethical outlook could be all wrong is actually incoherent or otherwise problematic. At the very least, some beliefs and perhaps even some ethical elements within the worldview in question will not be mistaken, but true, at least as much as we can discern the latter, the truth, ourselves. Put differently, we share the argument could run, some non-ethical and some ethical elements even with a coherent Nazi. 
For example, a 2 plus 2 is 4. That Cyclone B is poisonous for individuals and therefore ought to be avoided. That the sun's warm is good for animal life. Or that we feel anger and indignation when our loved ones get hurt. Hence, either we have to be mistaken about these shared elements too, which seems implausible, or the coherent Nazi outlook is only on the whole wrong, not all wrong, or wrong as a whole. In response, I would like to suggest that if we think about outlooks holistically, we can make sense of the idea that an outlook can be wholly wrong, even if it seems as if it contains elements that we regard as right. Thus, it is only on the surface that there appears to be agreement with the coherent Nazi that Zyklone B is poisonous for individuals and therefore to be avoided. In reality, what he means by individuals is, given the whole this element is part of, different from what we mean by individual. For example, Jews might not be individuals properly speaking for him, and within his outlook, Cyclone B might not be all things considered bad for them. True, it kills him, but there is something to be welcomed and should be fervent, not avoided. Whereas individuals for us undoubtedly include people of Jewish faith or background who deserve to be protected from exposure to Cyclone B. What about non-ethical elements? Like the basic, basic math example. 2 plus 2 equals 4. Here too, holism means that the overlap is only apparent. Amerson remarks about an ethical outlook he thought was wrong as a whole, but its proponents are, and I quote, not false in a few particulars authors of a few lies, but falls in all particulars. Their truth is not quite true. Their two is not the real two. Their four is not the real four. So that every word they say charging us, and we know not where to begin to set them right." Unquote. Two plus two is four. It's not just a mathematical equation which has the same meaning across all outlooks or social contexts, but rather means something else if, for example, the paradigm examples used to teach it are fundamentally different, or if, the mathematics, if mathematics itself is an esoteric discipline done only by priests in the worship of the gods, or if it's an everyday instrument to calculate one's profit in a market economy, or if it plays an important role in the implementation of an extermination program. Once we do not think of ethical outlooks as constituted by discrete atomistic elements. The idea that a view as a whole could be wrong, because each element is embedded in relations with the other elements and thereby everything is made wrong, in fact it becomes less implausible. However, and perhaps unwelcome implication of admitting to this possibility, is that we either have to deny that Davidson is right, that we cannot make a view comprehensible unless we ascribe mostly true beliefs to its holders, i.e. we have to either deny that he's right that we have to adopt the principle of charity in our interpretations of others, or admit to the view's incomprehensibility. My proposal is that we do the former. We deny the principle of charity. There's some truth to the claim that a view that is, say, completely delusional is incomprehensible to us. Specifically, we cannot comprehend how and why one might come to adopt it, or how it exactly feels to live within it. In this sense, a schizophrenic patient coming out of a psychotic episode might view his view, his psychotic beliefs, as implausible or even incomprehensible in retrospect. However, it's also true that such delusional views need not be completely unintelligible or incomprehensible, especially if they have a high level of internal coherence. In that case, if they have this high level of internal coherence, we can think ourselves into their world and make sense of connections, even draw inferences, or anticipate behavior, or delineate the reasons that 
these deluded people are likely to accept from those which we're not disposed to accept, and so on. We can do so while accepting that they are, they are subject to a completely deluded world. Just as we can make sense of the world of a character in a novel, or play, or film, and anticipate what they might do without ascribing mostly true beliefs to them about the world as it actually is, albeit we might have to attribute mainly true beliefs about how the world is depicted in the artwork. I want to suggest that it is likewise with ethical outlooks which we judge to be wholly wrong. We might not be able to comprehend how and why someone came to hold this view, or what exactly it feels like from the inside. But we can make some sense of how they will behave and what they say in the light of their outlook. It's not completely gibberish. It's not completely incomprehensible to us, even if we think that their view is wholly wrong. Indeed, we might study their outlook to understand better how it holds together and how it works, not least to defend us against its holders. With this objection diffused, let me ask what resources we have to investigate critically an outlook as a whole, and in which sense, if any, these critical resources are external to the outlook. This is now on page two of your handout. I do not mean to produce an exhaustive list or survey, but merely to highlight a cluster of five related resources that strike me as particularly pertinent to the kind of context at issue. I present these resources as much as possible as if speaking from within the ethical outlook under scrutiny, as if we are undergoing a process of critical self-critique of our ethical outlook. <clears throat> Firstly, we might want to start with a commonplace, namely that instead of just looking for internal coherence of our ethical outlook, we should also look at past and contemporary historical outlooks, even or perhaps especially as those at those who are incompatible with ours. Among other things, such an exposure to alternatives might make us see that our ethical outlook is perhaps only coherent because it's rather narrow and impoverished in its characterization of human affairs, or because important parts of our society are not giving a voice in shaping it. I come back to the second point below. In the case of comparisons with contemporary outlook, such reflection need not be, and might actually not be effective if it just is, intellectual and theoretical. Rather, it might be that what we need is an actual dialogue with an actual interlocutor who holds an alternative outlook and a kind of practical struggle and confrontation of wills with such an interlocutor. I come back to that too. When employing this first critical resource, our reflection would still be internal. We would not com be completely independent of our own ethical outlook when trying to look at it in the light of the historical and contemporary alternatives. We could not be so independent. Given the assumption that external validation is unavailable or unsuitable, reflection is always, to quote McDowell, from the midst of the way of thinking one is reflecting about, unquote. However, we could compare, we would compare, not one element of our view against the whole, or against how it fits into the whole, but the whole with other wholes. The comparison would be not just about one particular plank and how it fits in our boat compared to how it fits into alternative boats, but about the overall shapes of the boats. In a slogan, what we encounter here is internal, but piecemeal ethical validation, but not piecemeal ethical validation, I should say. Internal, but not piecemeal ethical validation. Naturally, there's no guarantee that using this first critical resource will make a difference. For if someone is reasonably confident in their outlook, the mere fact that others subscribe to a different one need not challenge them particularly even if the alternatives are themselves internally coherent. Nonetheless, 
there's also no guarantee against the change, even the radical one. Awareness of the alternative views and how they hang together as internally coherent views might at least take away some of the naturalness and necessity with which one previously viewed one's own outlook. Also, it might involve fascination, admiration, or attraction, especially if the alternative seems to be richer and more encompassing than one's own narrow perspective by one's own lines. Secondly, we can turn to the work of Bernard Williams for a critical resource beyond piecemeal reflection. While Williams is also committed to the idea that reflection can only, from the, can only be from the midst of ethical life, he proposes to include in it what he calls the critical theory test or critical theory principle. In a nutshell, it is the requirement, and I quote, that the acceptance of justification does not count if the acceptance is itself produced by the coercive power that is supposed to be justified, unquote. Somewhat generalizing it, we might say, that the acceptance of an ethical outlook, including judging it to be internally coherent, is not sufficient for validation if we have reasons to believe that this acceptance and the judgment of coherence is, slow, is solely due to the effects of the very power relations that are meant to be justified by the ethical outlook in question. William spells out one of the key presuppositions of this test, and I quote, although it does not rely on a theory of moral truth, it does depend on the theory of error, namely that if one comes to know that the sole reason one accepts some moral claim is that somebody's power has brought it about that one accepts it, when further it is in their interest that one should accept it, one will have no reason to go on accepting it, unquote. Admittedly, much more would need to be said about what is meant by power here and what is meant by how an acceptance of a belief is brought about solely by power relations. But the test seems to me crucial, and we should develop and deploy it. One might think that William's critical theory test is just a specific version of a piecemeal Neurotian reflection, insofar as the view that coercion itself, in itself cannot constitute legitimation might be part of the worldview under scrutiny. I'm not convinced that this is so. The test is not about checking for coherence of one element with the whole, a plank with the rest of the boat. But if we state within the metaphor at all, the hole's coherent with one of its elements, the boat with one of its planks, or perhaps with its keel. The test has this specific status since it embodies, at least according to Williams, a genuinely universal principle. If this is so, then insofar as the outlook under scrutiny is incompatible with the test, this outlook is wrong. Given that the outlook in question is internally coherent and wholly wrong, we need to assume then that it does not contain the principle that coercion itself cannot constitute legitimation, or at least that it doesn't contain, contain it in the sense in which we use coercion, legitimation, and so on. Hence, in a certain sense, the critical theory test is not internal. Still, it's not a form of external validation in the sense that Hursthaus, McDowell, and others reject. Rather, it's an external constraint and as such, similar to the way McDowell and others think about first nature, whereby they mean human nature as the natural sciences conceive of it. So they think of human nature um, as constraining what could count as ethical validation, but not itself as of ethical validation. And similarly, the critical theory test might be constraining what could count as ethical validation, but not itself be such a validation. Put differently, those who deny the universal principle the test embodies are no longer in the game of validation at all. Moreover, if a test truly embodies this universal principle, then even though it may not currently be part of the internally coherent but wholly wrong outlook under scrutiny, reflection could make it available, at least in principle. In practice, an actual challenge by someone of a different outlook might be required 
false. Thirdly, we might not just want to investigate whether our acceptance of ethical outlooks is due to the very power relations meant to justify, but ask more generally how we come to develop this outlook and our acceptance of it. In short, we might be interested and want to engage in the kinds of genealogy that Nietzsche, Foucault, and others have presented to us. These tend to focus on the effects of power relations too, but might also unearth other factors in the formation of our ethical outlook that shake our confidence. For example, it might suffice to shake this confidence when the naturalness or even necessity which our outlooks or elements they seem to have is shown to be illusionary. Or the deep contingency of the formation of our outlook is revealed, notably by the kind of historical or cultural comparisons I mentioned earlier. Similarly, genealogy might make things visible in our ethical outlook which might have been so far invisible because they are so habitual or constitutive that they cannot easily come into view. This approach is not a form of external validation. In many ways, it is internal, just working with the ethical outlook under scrutiny in its history. As such, it is not, or at least need not be, piecemeal. At most, one could say that it's using genealogy. In using genealogy, we compare a cluster of beliefs and values, our current ethical outlook, with another cluster of elements in our worldview, beliefs about the history of these outlooks, in part produced in the process of genealogy. Fourthly, we might assign special weight to those among us who contest the coherence and general acceptability of our ethical outlook, especially if they come from marginalized groups within our social world where our own outlook is dominant. In a way, this comes back to the first point, the commonplace about the importance of historical and cultural comparisons. Since one thing we might learn from the history uh, is that it's particularly the marginalized groups that championed revisions of past ethical outlooks that we now regard as essential and justified. And we should hence aim to identify and strengthen those people who challenge the mainstream consensus. Admittedly, it's true that this fourth resource might be deployed as part of piecemeal reflection. But such reflection would not suffice to get to the heart of the matter. The truly marginalized lack the vocabulary to articulate their suffering and grievances within the dominant outlook, and hence what is required is a more wholesale reflection and revision than merely piecemeal reflection or change. What is required is constructing a sort of counter-discourse, and then using what is thereby constructed as one of the alternatives with which we compare our dominant ethical outlook. Finally, we might submit our ethical outlook and worldview as a whole to a different test, namely the test how it would look in the eyes of a satirist or caricaturist. Naturally, this too would be done from the midst of the outlook and worldview itself. It would be our constructing, constructing and imagining from the inside, or at least at its limits, what a satirist or caricaturist would think of our whole ethical outlook. Still, it could have a defamiliarizing or distancing effect, which may lead one to abandon or change one's ethical outlook, even if coherent. Sometimes, a satire or caricature brings into view, um, brings into a, a view into relief in a way that our confidence is shaking, to our own surprise. Sometimes, what looks natural, normal, reasonable, not least because of its coherence, may then look silly, narrow, contrived, or arbitrary. This is done, however, not by focusing on individual elements alone, but on the whole, on the gestalt, if you will. It might be objected that even if these five resources are available in the absence of external validation, we have no reason to think that someone with a coherent but wholly wrong outlook would be aware of them or could take them up. If at all, they're only abstractly available not real options. 
In response, I readily admit that it would not be easy to access these resources for such a person, but I do not think that it would be impossible to do so. And this is so for four reasons. Firstly, piecemeal reflection might play a role here. Perhaps, made suspicious by piecemeal reflection, an agent might consider the outlook as a whole rather than simply drop one element, say the impermissibility of homosexuality from it. He or she might ask what it is about the whole that led to the inclusion of an element that strikes them as incoherent with the rest, and what it is that provides unity and coherence to the other elements. In this way, they might begin to undertake a genealogical inquiry or consider alternative viewpoints, both of which could have the wider implication to cast doubt over the whole ethical outlook. In a, world, in a word, it's hard to contain reflection, and hence piecemeal reflection might lead to something more wholesale and far-reaching. Secondly, actual engagement with other outlooks in worldview might make an agent consider their own outlook as a whole. In Littell's The Kindly Ones, Max Auer, for example, is confronted with his outlook as a whole in a scene where he interviews a captured political commissar of the Red Army. Admittedly, this encounter, which is not an in, just an intellectual one, but a confrontation of two individuals fully committed to their viewpoints, with a political commissar about to be shot for his convictions but unwavering in them, Admittedly, this encounter does not lead Max Auer to abandon his Nazism. Still, it does force him to take his outlook as a whole into view and compare it to an alternative, something which he then continues to grapple with from then on. Doing this could, in principle, lead to a wholesale change. Thirdly, one might think that human beings have certain material needs, the dissatisfaction of which will lead to suffering, which can be mitigated but not completely silenced by being explained or justified within a coherent outlook. Even if people do not recognize directly when and where their material needs are not satisfied because cultural or social mechanism repress such realization, or even if they accept their suffering as justified or inevitable on the basis of some of their beliefs and values, the fact of non-satisfaction of material needs and the repression required to deal with it will show up somewhere else, often with a vengeance. In this sense, a continuing disregard of these needs will remain a source for critical questioning, even in the face of internally coherent ethical outlooks and worldviews. For example, Nazism generated such dissatisfaction of material needs, including among its strongest adherents, at least in the context of the war it brought about, think of Stalingrad or the carpet bombing of German cities. This dissatisfaction led people to question Nazism, despite its internal coherence and despite the fact that it assigned such suffering a role in its overall system. As part of such questioning, people did take up, or at least could have taken up, the kind of resources suggested here. Finally, it's also notable that the skills involved in the five critical resources um, are often developed and then employed anyway. That is to say, even when we are not pursuing radical critical purposes, we engage in historical studies of our own outlook. Comparisons with alternatives, satires or caricatures, and attempts to bring people into the conversation. It might be that these skills and inquiries are supposed to be limited to the ways that, that do not destabilize the ethical outlook one holds. But having acquired and undertaking these um, skills and inquiries, they can be put to critical use too. Much more would have to be said about all of these issues. But let me briefly sum up. I have proposed that piecemeal narrative reflection on our ethical outlooks is um, not sufficient, and we need something beyond it. In particular, we should make use of other critical resources, historical and cultural comparisons, asking about the genesis of our acceptance of our ethical outlook, with particular attention paid to the role of power relations in its genesis. 
contestation by marginalized groups, and the defeminalization by satire and caricature. The purpose of this has been to suggest that beyond piecemeal neurotian reflection, there are other resources for ethical self-critique, even if we accept that we cannot have external validation of ethics. I've also indicated four reasons why these resources might be deployed by someone who is an inherent of a coherent but wholly wrong ethical view. Not necessarily because they value radical critique as such. From within their outlook, they might not see any merit in radical critique. But because such critique builds on skills and inquiries we anyway have and undertake, and because reflection can be hard to contain once it has started in a piecemeal fashion, or once it has been triggered by a real confrontation with alternative outlooks, or by dissatisfaction of material needs. Nothing guarantees that having the critical resources I enumerated at our disposal, we avoid having wrong, or even wholly wrong, outlooks. There is not, and cannot be, a foul-proof immunization in ethics. Yet we should not think that we are left empty-handed either. There are various antibodies we can mobilize. Thank you. <laughs>